Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. Well, good morning. Now, one of the challenges of the 21st century is all the information that we have to take in. I mean, there's uh, newspapers, magazines, televisions, uh, radio, uh, phone calls, emails, the whole internet thing, Facebook, Insta chat, Insta, what, what is it? Instagram, Snap, yeah, all that stuff. It's too much um, <laughs> to keep track of. And it just keeps growing and expanding. And what do you do with it all? You know, 300 years ago, it was possible for an educated person to, in a sense, know everything about everything. These days, we don't know everything about anything. There's just too much information. And you have to begin wrestling with the question, what's important? What matters? What do I need to pay attention to? In America, someone has said that uh, Americans know everything that happened in the last 24 hours, a little bit about what happened in the last 24 years, and absolutely nothing about the last 2,400 years. And I think that's true. There's just too much. So what's important? I want to suggest to you this morning that one of the things that's important for us to pay attention to is the life of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, and this uh, thing we've gathered to celebrate this morning, this, this resurrection story. You see, nobody has divided history like Jesus has. Nobody has shaped the world we live in like Jesus has. If we believe what he says, he says that he is the determiner of our eternal destiny. If nothing else, we should pay attention to him. This morning, we want to give him some attention. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to invite your spirit to be here this morning, and we ask that he would give us ears that hear and open minds and hearts that are responsive to your truth and the reality of who you are, what Jesus has done, and his resurrection from the grave. Would you be in the midst of this morning? Would you have your way with us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At Waterstone, we believe that the Bible is true, and we believe that it has power, actually, to change our lives, to transform us. So we spend a lot of time studying the Bible, trying to understand what a passage means, and then trying to apply it to our lives. We, we have been looking at the book of Mark for the last six months, and we've come to the final story in the book of Mark that has to do with this resurrection thing. Um, but to understand what Mark is doing in this last story, we need to kind of have an overview of the book. What's going on in the whole of the book if we're going to understand the ending? So we want to give you kind of a... a, a high-level view of the book of Mark. And we thought the best way to do that was to watch together a video put out by the Bible Project. 
you haven't checked out their website, BibleProject.com, I encourage you to do that. It's one of the best things I've listened to and watched in the last few years. They just do incredible stuff. So anyway, let's watch it together. That's the key question. Is this crucified Jesus, the Messiah, the true king? Now, Mark has this notion that if he can show that the resurrection actually happened, that it's a a fact of history, that it really occurred, that would be proof of everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did. So what Mark wants to do in this last story is give evidence, kind of the facts of what took place. Now, now sometimes when we uh, think about people back then, we think that it was easier for them to believe in the resurrection than it is for us. After all, they were supernatural, probably easily duped. Uh, It's true, we know more about the natural world than they did. But look, one of the fundamental realities of life is dead things stay dead. They knew that just as much as we did. So the idea that this person could come back alive, be resurrected from the dead, was as absurd to them, unbelievable to them, as it is to us. So Mark uh, becomes a bit of an apologist, someone who is defending the faith, in a sense, to kind of show why it's true. The first thing he does is he gives us some eyewitness accounts. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It's really interesting that if you look at the ministry of Jesus, about 50% of the disciples were women. And these women, not only were his disciples, but they followed him around. And in fact, some of them even financed his ministry. It was an unheard of thing in that day. Uh, But women were really important to Jesus. And in fact, uh, he, Mark, uses their eyewitness account of what happened to to tell us the facts. And and that's amazing. Because you have to understand that in those days... uh, women weren't seen as very credible. In fact, there's a Greek philosopher, Celsius, who read the accounts of the resurrection, and because they included women and were based on their testimony, he rejected them. He, he said that you can't trust women because they're hysterical. Celsius said that. I did not. Okay? But I think uh, the women's testimony actually have just the opposite effect. It's one of the things that help us know that these really are true accounts of what actually happened. Listen to what John Polkinghorn writes about this. He's an Anglican priest and a scholar, theologian. He writes, perhaps the strongest reason for taking the stories of the empty tomb absolutely seriously lies in the fact that it is women who play the leading role. It would have been very unlikely for anyone in the ancient world who was concocting a story, making it up, to assign the principal part to the women, since in those times they were not considered capable of being reliable witnesses in a court of law. It's assuredly much more probable that they, the women, appear in the gospel accounts precisely because they actually fulfilled the role that the stories assigned to them. And in so doing, they make a startling discovery. 
Now, when Mark gives us the testimony of the women, he wants us to be very clear of who they are. And that's one of the things you did when you were giving eyewitness testimony in ancient documents. You would list names. And Mark lists the names of the women, Mary and Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, Salome. Uh, he lists them three times in eight verses. It's like, he, I don't want you to miss this. And that's because when Mark's account of the resurrection became public, those women were still alive. Uh, he, in a sense, Mark is giving us source identification. He wants us to know where he got the testimony from because some people would know who those people are and they could check it out. If, if you didn't believe Mark, you could go talk to Mary Magdalene. You could go talk to Mary, the mother of James. You could go talk to Salome to see if what he was saying was really true. And it's interesting, when you read the account the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus that you find in all four Gospels don't feel like legend or myth. They feel like eyewitness historical accounts. In fact, on the one hand, they're all the same, and on the other hand, they're all different because they give so much detail, the details differ. Now, some people get frustrated with those details because at times there's discrepancies. I mean, the gospel accounts agree on the basic events, but the details sometimes even seem to contradict. But that's the nature of eyewitness testimony. I mean, think if, as you leave today, you're coming out here on bowls and you're turning left and you witness two cars hit each other. It's a kind of dangerous intersection. And you begin to investigate what happened, so you find six or seven or eight witnesses that saw what happened and you interview them. One of the things you would find is that the accounts are all the same and they're all different. Uh, the basic facts are the same, two cars collided, but the details and the perspective and the emphasis, all those would differ a bit. There would be discrepancies because that's the nature of an eyewitness account. In fact, if all those accounts agree, you'd begin to think that they were working together. You would begin to think that there was collaboration because eyewitnesses' accounts don't always all agree. That fact gives more credence to the reality, the historical reality and fact-worthiness of the Gospels. Now, Mark's account, these eyewitnesses' account of the women, I think refutes this notion that the Gospel accounts are really simply legend or myth. They're not. They're history. These are not like the tales of Hercules or Apollos or, or Zeus. These are eyewitness accounts of what actually happened 2,000 years ago. Let's go on with verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, Pilate is asking a really important question here. Is Jesus really dead? I mean, he, he went on to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning, and by 3, he's dead. And, and that seems just too short of a time. But Jesus was badly abused, scourged, a crown of thorns, beaten, probably had something to do with him dying so soon. But Pilate wants to make sure, so he doesn't ask the women, he doesn't ask Joseph. He calls the centurion. Now, the centurion 
His job was to execute people. That's what he did all day long, and he was good at it. And one of the things that happens to you when you do that all the time, you become an expert in death. You know when somebody is dead or alive. You have to know because your job is on the line. The worst thing you could do is let a dead man go walking, to let a a man who is still alive come down off the cross because that would mean your job and most likely your life. The centurion says, no, he he was dead. Now with that, Mark is really confronting this uh, alternate explanation, this idea that Jesus didn't really die, he just swooned. It's this notion that because of the scourging and the crown of thorns and the beatings and the sword that was shoved up his side, uh, because of all that, Jesus lost consciousness. Didn't die, everybody just thought he was dead. And you see, what he really needed was to be placed in a tomb for three days in the darkness, in the cold, without food and without water and very limited air. That's just what he needed to revive him. And reviving himself and feeling a little more strength, he was able to get up, roll away this huge stone in front of the door, scare away the Roman guards, and appear to his disciples and say, ta-da, I conquered death. And they believed him. And if you believe that, well, to be honest, it's just easier to believe the resurrection. (laughs) Much easier. Jesus was dead. Verse 46 So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Uh, We know that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was on the council, but he was also a disciple of Jesus. And he used his wealth to honor Jesus. So he took Jesus down from the cross and placed Jesus in his own family tomb. We're told that it was a new tomb. In those days, when a person died, they would wrap them in linen and they would place them in a tomb and there was kind of a place where you could lay out the body. Then they'd close the tomb up and uh, they would let the body rot, decompose. It would take six months, maybe a year, but... They would come back eventually, and uh, all that would be left would be the bones. And they would take those bones, and they would put them in what is called an ossuary or a bone box. And then they'd set the bone box aside or in a niche, and that way the tomb could be used for multiple people and the whole family. It was a burial tomb. In front of the tomb was a huge stone that they would roll into place. It served two purposes. One... It would keep the jackals out, and two, it would keep the stench in. One of the reasons they would bring spices and anoint the body with spices to cover up the decomposition of the flesh. It smelled like death. It's really interesting that when Mark is telling us all these things, he he mentions very explicitly that both the Marys saw where the body was put, what tomb it was in. You see, one of the alternate explanations that was given for the empty tomb was that the women went to the wrong tomb, that they got confused. They actually didn't know where the body of Jesus was laid, and that's why the tomb was empty. Of course, if that happened, then the Romans had to 
go to the wrong tomb, and the Jewish leaders had to go to the wrong tomb, and the disciples had to go to the wrong tomb. Everybody went to the wrong tomb, and that doesn't explain the appearances, the changed lives, and the growth of the church. Everybody just was mistaken. The tomb wasn't really empty. Mark says, no, everybody knew where the body was. Then Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint the, Jesus' body. Evidently, Joseph didn't have enough spices to do an adequate job. They were going back to honor the body of Jesus, put more spices on him. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And notice what they were talking about. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? This is fascinating because what it tells you is they had no expectation of resurrection. It was as much of a surprise to them as it was to everybody else. Which is a little strange because Jesus had told them multiple times that he was going to die and that he was going to be raised in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10. You know, if they would have got it, you would have thought they would have camped out at the tomb, you know, eating popcorn, waiting for the, 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 the stone to blow off. But they didn't. Because they didn't think he was coming back. Now, what that helps with is refuting this notion of hallucinations. Some people want to say that uh, the disciples wanted Jesus to rise from the dead so much that they just had hallucinations that he really did. A few problems with that. Psychologists had, have studied these group hallucinations, and what they found is there are none. There, there's no confirmed group hallucination or mass hallucination. The hallucinations are always individual. And two, people who hold that theory are projecting on the disciples this huge expectation, this incentive to, to see Jesus come back from the grave, but there was none. That was a surprise to them. That notion of resurrection was at odds with their whole Jewish faith and their whole Jewish theology. They didn't expect an individual to be raised from the dead at all. Uh, um, no way. And if you look at the appearances of Jesus, they don't seem like hallucinations. I mean, Jesus talks with them. They can reach out and touch him. Thomas has put his fingers in the wounds. Jesus eats. That's not a, a hallucination. Jesus really died. Jesus really was raised. And Jesus really appeared. It's kind of strange. Well, verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they're trying to figure out what was happening. The tomb is open. They know something weird is going on. And Mark helps us out here. He says, as they entered the tomb, they saw, saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be afraid, he said. Just note to self, when you see a guy dressed in white, and he says, do not fear, that's biblical code for angel. Okay? That's an angel. <laughs> and he says, uh, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. There were a lot of Jesuses around, but he has a particular one in mind, the guy from Nazareth that they know who was crucified. Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, he has risen. 
Now, in the Greek, that is all one word, hegerthe. Hegerthe, that one word, he has risen. That changes everything. That changes the whole world. That means he's conquered death. He has risen. Hegerthe. And suddenly, everything is different. Notice he goes on. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The tomb is empty. Do you know the most radical skeptics, all of them admit that the tomb was empty? And it is that fact that makes Christianity different than every other religion and Jesus different than every other religious leader. You go to the tomb of Confucius, occupied. You go to the tomb of Buddha, occupied. You go to the tomb of Muhammad, occupied. Go to the tomb of Jesus, empty. Hegerthe, he has risen. If you want to reject the resurrection, then the thing you have to explain is the empty tomb. You can say, well, the Romans took the body, or the Jewish leaders took the body. Well, if they took the body, why didn't they produce it when this, this notion of resurrection began to spread? Oh, well, the disciples stole the body. But why would the disciples still steal the body? Uh, to promote a lie for which then they would have to give their lives for and eventually become martyrs for? I mean, that would have been the greatest April Fool's joke in the history of the world. No, they believed that Jesus was Hegerathe, raised from the dead. See, it's the fact that the tomb is empty and Jesus was raised that explains why lives were changed, why they saw him again, why the church began to spread and grow like a wildfire. There's no other explanation other than that one word, Hegerthe, he has risen. Then notice how the women respond. Trembling and bewildered, <laughs> the women went out and fled from the tomb. They're actually shaking. And bewildered is the word ecstasis, which means ecstasy. They have an ecstasy of the confusion of the mind. They do not get it. They don't understand what has happened. So they run. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why did the women run? Why are they so scared? There was a man named John. He was actually a denominational official. He worked for a church group. Part of his responsibilities to the denomination was to go to these rural parts. This was in Minnesota. It's a true story. To go to these rural parts in Minnesota where there was no church. And when people died, they needed someone to come and do the funeral. So he would grab the local undertaker, and they would get in the hearse, and they would held, head out to these rural areas. They would do the funeral, and then they'd head back. They had done this this one day. Uh, it had been a long day. John was really tired when we were the heading back, so he decided to take a nap. And I know it sounds kind of creepy, but he, he figured the best place to take a nap was in the back of the hearse. So he call, crawled into the back of the hearse, laid down, and he went to sleep. On their way back, uh, gas was running low in the hearse, so the undertaker decided to stop and get gas, and they pulled into a gas station, and it was one of those that still had the service attendant fill your gas tank up. So the service attendant is there, standing on the side of the hearse, filling up the gas tank, and he looks in, and he sees this body laid out, and he begins to freak out. And then John wakes up. He opens his eyes. He sits up. He knocks on the window, and he waves. <laughs> 
And John says he's never seen anybody run so fast in his life. When you see life where you expect it to see death, you run. It scares you because it changes everything. Hey, Gareth, he has risen, and they don't know what to do with it. So what's that mean? What's it all mean? Well, one of the things it means is that Jesus really did what he said he did and was who he said he was. Do you remember Dr. Seuss? He wrote children's stories. One, one of the best characters in Dr. Seuss's book is the elephant named Horton. Do you remember Horton? Horton meets this, this kind of flaky bird named Macy. And Macy has an egg that she's trying to hatch, but she's getting tired of sitting on her egg, uh, um, and she wants to, to leave it. So she asks Horton to watch her egg, and Horton agrees. The problem is Macy leaves, but she doesn't come back. So now Horton is stuck with this egg. So he, a great illustration, he climbs a tree and he sits on the egg. And he won't leave it. He, he, he won't walk away from it. He gave his word. He, he's going to take care of it. And then do you remember the wording that Dr. Seuss puts in the mouth of Horton, the elephant? He says, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. Horton keeps his word. You know what, folks? Jesus keeps his word. Do you remember what the angel said to the women? He is going to meet you in Galilee just as he said he would. Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant and was faithful 100%. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval, his certification of authenticity on the life and the works of Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus really is the true and perfect king that all history has been waiting for, all history has been looking for. He is the one that the Bible is about. He is the one who came and set up his kingdom, who's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to rule justly. He's putting away oppression. He will make all things the way they're supposed to be. He will make all things right. Why? Because he's king. The true and perfect king. And it means that he did what he said he did. He became a ransom for many. Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. And when he went to the cross and was crucified, he took on himself our sin and all the evil of the world. And on the cross, he, he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated all evil. He conquered it. It was raised from the grave as proof. And it's because of that we can have forgiveness and freedom, and eternal life. You know, the book ends right there, and it is kind of a strange ending. But I think Mark does that intentionally because with that ending, it, it forces you to ask yourself this question, what am I going to do with Jesus Christ? Is he who he said he was? Did he do what he said he did? 
I like what Wolfhart Pannenberg writes. He says the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. (laughs) That's the problem, isn't it? If he's king, we have to change the way we live. See, that that is the issue. Will we give him our allegiance or will we walk away? Will we bend the knee or will we turn the back? What will we do? My guess this morning, there are four groups of people here. On one end of the continuum, you could label a group uh, the committed. (laughs) These are people who woke up this morning and said, man, what a great day. It's a day to celebrate Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. They have oriented their life around him. Jesus is their king. He gives them meaning, purpose, forgiveness, and eternal life. He is the key to how they live. And for them, this is an awesome day. They're the committed. Another group that I might label the half-hearted. These are people who aren't really sure about Jesus and this resurrection thing. They may have gone to church at times, may even be involved in a Bible study at times, may have prayed a prayer sometime, but it doesn't make much impact on their life. At the very best, it's like they're driving the car of life and they've stopped and they've asked Jesus to get in on the passenger side. But folks, Jesus doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. He wants to be Lord over all or not at all. And if you're in that category, what you have to do is stop the car, get out, let him get in the driver's seat, and you get back in on the passenger side. You can't be half-hearted. Another group might be the unconvinced. You've been sitting, sitting here and listening and thinking to yourself, well, at least I haven't fallen asleep. And man, it's almost over. Because <sighs> you don't know about this Jesus thing. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. This is, this is hard stuff. But you're curious. To you, I want to give a challenge. Try Alpha. Try it. I mean, Jesus and his life and his resurrection is is one of the things we have to pay attention to because the consequences are eternal. You, You just can't ignore it. At some point, you have to make a decision. Bend the knee or turn the back. One other category, the committed, the half-hearted, the unconvinced, and the ready. You've been sitting here and you're thinking, you know, I think this Jesus guy really did come back from the grave. I think he really did die for my sins. And I'm ready to make him my king and trust him. Heard of a woman who came to that point in her life where she wanted to be forgiven for her sins, had come to the conclusion that Jesus was king. But she wanted real clarity to her decision. So she went home and she stood on the threshold between her kitchen and her living room. And, and she, she said this to God at that point. She said, God, 
When I step over this line, I'm leaving my old life behind. And I'm telling you that I believe that you are real, that Jesus is real, that Jesus died for my sin, that Jesus was resurrected, and that I want him to be my king. And then she stepped over the line. And that was the biggest step of her life because at that moment, she became a child of God. Where are you this morning? Are you ready? Easter is a great day to step over the line. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was raised from the dead. Thank you that he gives us life and forgiveness and himself. Lord, this morning we proclaim him king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.